Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 72 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, the Mandolin Cafe. Speaking of websites, I updated my website to um, have a better, more interactive store feature where you can purchase multiple items in one transaction. Before my old store through WordPress, you could only buy like a shirt and you had to check out, and then a hat and you had to check out. It's a nightmare. And so I upgraded it so you can... Um, you can purchase multiple items if you so desire. So be sure to check that out. Great way to support the podcast. I also have the Patreon page as well. $4 a month and $8 a month. Two different ones. $4 if you want to support it. $8 if you want to pick up some lessons and tips. Uh, I'm adding three new videos to that uh, today um, that I'm really excited about. A couple picking exercises and a cool little uh, scale exercise too to get up and down the neck and across the neck. Anyway... Let's thank the sponsors, Peghead Nation. They got a brand new website that's incredible looking, and uh, their their teachers are always updating it. They got the best teachers, man. They got Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, uh, Marla Feibish, and uh, Chad Manning, and just killer quality videos. They're still doing them when they're from when they're at home during this COVID stuff, so they're not in the studio. But you can download the tabs, the notation. There's just so many incredible songs in so many different genres. And even if you don't just play mandolin, they have guitar, banjo, bass, ukulele. They got it all, man. And if you go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code mandolinbeer at checkout, guess what? You get your first month for free. So check them out. Also, Northfield Mandolins. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Also, Ear Trumpet Labs. Ear Trumpet Labs gets a shout out not only in this episode from um, David, but in next week's episode with my guest Rich, Rich Del Grosso. Uh, that's another excellent one. Man, that guy, if, if you like blues mandolin, he's got it down. So that's next week's guest. But Ear Trumpet Labs, they're hand built microphones in Portland, Oregon. They're beautifully designed, have great feedback rejection for live use, and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. And what better time to get one now than during the holidays for yourself or your mandolin lover? So check out eartrumpetlabs.com today. And then also Pava Mandolins. Pava Mandolins dedicated to building for the impassioned player. Beautiful mandolins. Um, lots of stores just getting some in, it looked like, too. I've seen a few posts in the last few weeks of some beautiful pavas going up there. So gorgeous, sound amazing. So check out Pava Mandolins at their website. So let's get into the episode with David. We're going to start off, we left off when he started talking about his lore, and this is a great story on how that lore was uh, purchased from, I guess, the original owner. Um, I guess you could say the original owner. Uh, it's a classic. So check it out, and thanks, everybody. Cheers. Peter Leibenguth had located it. Peter Leibenguth owned this famous music store in right in, in downtown Chicago called the Fret Shop. And Peter Leibenguth was also, he was hunting and sniffing out vintage instruments of all kinds. And uh, he had found, he had found many lures back in the 50s and was 
fencing them to whoever was looking for them. But he found this one lore in, in Peoria, Illinois. But the guy that owned it was the brother of a Gibson sales agent who had died in 1923 and had never sold this. It was unsold stock. And, and, and his brother, who had lived for the decades after that, had this mandolin, but was not himself a mandolin player. But he had this, uh, whatever was left over from the holdings of his, his deceased brother's estate. But he wouldn't sell it to Peter Leibenguth because he said he would only sell it to a musician, not a dealer, and had this attitude against dealers. And he said, and so... Uh, so Peter called Mike, because Mike had put the word out among various uh, dealers like in New York and different different cities that were uh, like Matt Umanoff's and places like that, <clears throat> and um, had put a word out that he was looking for a L Lloyd Lore F5 mandolin. And uh, so Peter Leibenguth called Mike and said, I found a mandolin that you might be able to go get, but I can't get it because he will only sell directly to a musician. So if you pay me a finder's fee, if uh, I'll tell you, I'll give you the name and address and, but, and the phone number of the guy that owns it actually was in a nursing home in Chicago. But the mandolin was in Peoria, Illinois, in a, on a farm out in the country, just outside of Peoria. It was in a... Uh, storage shed and had been sitting in a storage shed for years an unheated storage shed so in the winter time it was cold in summertime it was probably well it wasn't hot it wasn't like in an attic area so it never was exposed to excessive heat but it was exposed to excessive cold sure <clears throat> luckily it never damaged the mandolin i guess the heat would be worse than excessive cold but uh it was in the original case, and Mike called the guy in Chicago, and the guy said, I'm not going to sell it to anyone unless they, unless they can go get the mandolin and bring it to me, and they have to be able to play the music that I heard in the 1920s, because that's uh, if, if, you, if you can't play the pop music of the 1920s, then I'm going to wait and find someone that can play the, the, the music the mandolin was made for. And if you can't do that, then take a hike, buddy, that wow. kind of thing. <laughs> wow. And so Mike, Mike went up with uh, Tom Paley, I believe it was. And they, but th before they went up, they, he did a, he did like a crash study to make, to like figure out a few tunes they could play <laughs> sure. to impress the guy. So <clears throat> they had to drive to Chicago first to get a key to the house on this farm, which the guy, the old, the, this guy in the nursing home had lived in this house on this farm, had a key to the house. So he gave him the key to the house with the instructions as to where the key to the shed was. So Mike and Tom Paley drove down to this house just outside of Peoria and got, went into the house. And of course, you know, this was back in the days when you could trust strangers to send them on those, these kinds of missions. <laughs> right, right. So, <clears throat> So uh, they went down, got the key to the shed, went into the shed, and there were a bunch of Gibson instruments in cases that hadn't been sold. There were uh, one of them was a harp guitar, and some like other 1920s guitars, and some banjos from, from the lower era, wow. <clears throat> and some unsold Gibson merchandise. So, uh, like you know, uh, un uncut bridges and things like that, armrests for banjos and pick guards and stuff like that, uh, Gibson catalogs and things like that. So Mike just grabbed the mandolin 
and left and uh, didn't get anything else. And he went back up with the mandolin and tuned it up. And it was in perfect condition. It was in mint condition, never played. And then Mike was able, Mike and, and Tom Paley were able to serenade this guy with, <laughs> with music that would make him say, yes, I'll sell it to you. And the guy was no dummy. He'd already done research and knew what they were trading for. And at that time, they were trading for around $350 to $400. I was just going to ask you that. So how does that relate to other instruments of the ilk? Like, a, like a, let's say, a, a new Gibson in that in, in 50 58. Oh, it was maybe I don't know. I don't remember what I don't remember what F five sold for in the late fifties, but mm-hmm. it maybe was twice the, the price or something. But okay. that was extru- a, a huge price to pay for a lore. Sure. And and but the guy said, I know what these things are worth, and they're worth like the, 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 maybe three hundred or four hundred dollars. But he said, I'm not going to take a penny less than four hundred and fifty. Man. <laughs> and so, and Mike. Uh, like didn't have 450. He had, I think like 400 thinking he'd get it, but he somehow was able to procure the other 50 and he bought it. And at that time, from what uh, Mike told me, that was the highest known price ever paid for a lore. Oh, and he wow. said, uh, he, by paying 450, he set a new precedent <laughs> because the word, the word got out and it was big news. <clears throat> so, uh, I'm going to have another sip of my beer. Yeah, man, this absolutely. Is, this what, is, what is the beer you're currently <clears throat> sipping on? I am drinking a Goose Island bourbon barrel stout. Oh, nice. Because this is the season. They only come out, they only come out around Thanksgiving. Oh, that's a good one. Goose so Island makes some a great mo- beer. A moment, of, a, a moment where I won't speak where I'm going to slurp on my beer. Absolutely. Right <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Love it. That Goose Island bourbon stout is decadent. Oh, man. And it, it does one of two things. I can't quite tell. It either makes me play better or it makes me think I play better. I don't <laughs> oh, it's, know. It's, it's definitely play better. That's my theory. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, back to the mandolin, the, the old F5 that is now mine and has been for over 40 years now. But uh, So Mike had that mandolin. And it was too mint to take out. It had a high gloss finish, and it, it it was so mint that it looked like a copy. No, not even any, not even any tiny little spiderweb checking in it. That is crazy for something being it was in like just a, a high shed. gloss. Wow. Yeah, and like having been out in the cold, it right, did not get right. any of that spiderweb checking, which is the weirdest thing. <clears throat> but it had not been refinished. But uh, so he ended up buying it, t- taking it home. He loved it. He was so proud of it. But it was so clean, he didn't want to sweat on it or take it out and play it. But he did a little bit, and he recorded those early Folkways records with it. But he wanted to get another mandolin that he could feel better about playing. So I'm not. he got another lore, the 1922 that Tom Rosam owns now. And Mike kept that. It was, it was more... Had more wear and tear on it, mm-hmm. so Mike didn't worry about playing that one out. And it's a, it's an, also an amazing sounding one. And then Mike got a, uh, then he uh, he procured or acquired a uh, uh, a 1926 or 27 fern that had been stripped. All the original finish had been stripped off by Jim Williams and refinished. Oh wow. So it was Mike's blonde fern, and that and the top had been thinned 
down too. So it, it actually it actually sounded amazing. I was going to ask, like, with that finish stripped off there like that, it probably sounded pretty great. It sounded better, uh, according to Jim Williams. And uh, Mike thought it was an amazing sounding mandolin. I, everybody thought it was amazing. I thought it was an amazing mandolin. And that was the one Mike most often played out after he got that. Then he kind of put the 22 lower back and only took that out very rarely. Never took the 23 out. And uh, he ended up getting a third lore in 1924, which he ended up selling to John Duffy. Mike did not like that one very much, and John Duffy didn't like it either. And John Duffy bought it, and then he thought, very quickly thought, "What? Well, you know, I was an idiot for buying this thing. It's a piece of junk, <laughs> according to John Duffy. He thought it was just really bad. He ended up selling it. I can't imagine any lore being a piece of junk. I thought, or, or being bad sounding, they might... They might not be, some of them aren't as loud as others, but I remember the 24, and it was an amazing sounding mandolin. It just didn't have a lot of volume. See, that's the thing people don't understand, uh, is that it's not about volume. You don't have to have a banjo crusher. Everybody's competing to have the loudest instrument. It's like a, banjos don't have to be loud. A Martin D28 does not have to be loud. If, you're, if all you're looking for is volume, then you're, sometimes that volume might come at the expense of certain other things like tone. Yeah. Uh, Seems like if, you, if all you were concerned about is volume, you wouldn't even need to worry about vintage. You could just go out and buy something brand new that's loud. And that's what they're. But that's one of the most important things in mo, in, in in the minds of modern makers. Is we got It's got to be loud because everybody's got to have loud. Everybody's got to say my mandolin's a, a a banjo crusher, or my or my or my banjo's a Martin crusher, or whatever. You know, it's like you know they have these things. They this these devices were invented called microphones. <laughs> so. <Yes. laughs> If all you are is an amateur jammer, then maybe volume is what you're looking for. But if you ever, if you're a studio or stage professional musician, then volume isn't isn't what it's about. So an example like Monroe's mandolin is was not a loud mandolin. It wasn't loud at all. My mandolin is a loud mandolin, which happens to be also an amazing sounding one. But it's not at the expense of that's uh, it's got volume, but not at the expense of tone. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are many mandolins louder than my mandolin. Monroe's mandolin wasn't as loud as my mandolin, and and when you it, when you jammed with it, everybody else had to quiet up to hear it. And that's what uh, amateur jammers don't seem to know how to do is instead of trying to play as loud as you can to prove you have the loudest instrument at the jam, play it as quiet as you can, especially when other people are singing or taking a break or whatever, you know. If you want to shine and demonstrate how loud your instrument is on a break, that's that's one thing. But it's how do you play softly? So, and Tony Rice is the same way. Tony Rice, if you jam with Tony Rice, he's not all about like putting out huge volume. He plays quietly, so you got to quiet up to hear what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's uh, some of the best players I've played with, especially in like the last year and a half, that's the one thing I've really, really noticed, especially I've done a couple live streams, like with four mandolins at a time. And mm-hmm. everybody there was real conscious of everybody else. And it was all it was all about tone and respecting the other person's playing as opposed to just just slamming away for 
an hour. It was it was remarkable to play with people. Right. Like that. I, I, it, it sounds so much nicer when instead of like thrashing on your instrument, see how quiet you can play it. You'll discover, wow, it actually can sound good. Mm-hmm. You know, the instrument can make some beautiful beautiful tones if you don't play them too hard. Banjos, you know, so, but or mandolins. But anyway, back to the to the twenty four lower that Mike had. It didn't have a lot of volume. It was a very quiet mandolin, but it had great tone. It was one of the quietest mandolins. You couldn't get it to, to chop loud, or and so and John Duffy needed a louder mandolin. John Duffy he liked good tone, but he also needed loud. Mm-hmm. You know how John Duffy was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And so uh, John Duffy, instead of like. Uh, he was real good at taking mandolins and thinning the tops and rebuilding them and thinning the braces and refinishing them and turning them into really great mandolins. He did that beautifully with like uh, 1950s F12s and things like that. Uh, he could take a, like a, some of those mandolins which had really thick wood and he could thin down the wood and rebuild them and thin the braces and make them sound really fantastic. But he didn't want to do that to the lore because he knew that you know, you don't do that to a lore. Sure. So he just, he, he sold it and got good money for it. And he did keep it long because he couldn't get anything out of it. He couldn't get, he what what John Duffy couldn't do with it is he couldn't get John Duffy out of the mandolin. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, but I talk uh, with John Duffy a lot about that mandolin. And of course, I had a lot of access to the 24 growing up. But the 23 was the one that I was always really goofy over. I li- and the 22 as well, but the 23, I don't know what it was. I think it had something to do with the fact that Michael always said, oh, this is the one I bought the year you were born. <laughs> so There is something I, about know, that, think, though. That's, there, was- there is something about that. Like he, Mike, I think, I think Mike thought it was, I think Mike, I think Mike thought that the mandolin and I had a special connection is what it was. I really do. Because when I went over to the house, he'd say, you want to see that mandolin I bought the year you were born, don't you? <laughs> so, you know, back when I was like 10 years old or whatever. So, uh, anyway, I, 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 had, I had unlimited access to that mandolin and borrowed it on a number of occasions. Uh, he used to loan me instruments. I borrowed his flathead uh, RB3 for a long time. He also had a 1931... Martin slope shoulder dreadnought. Oh, cool! With the slot head, I borrowed that for several years, and uh, I was hoping he'd. For, I was hoping he'd forget, but would have would have forget he had loaned that to me. But no, he <laughs> he, he ended up recalling it so because he needed it for some project. But uh, so anyway, he said one day this mandolin will be this twenty three. If you want it, you you know. Someday you can. I'll, I'll just let you have it. So uh, then I joined the Johnson Mountain Boys. I was up. Well, I was the Johnson Mountain. I was. That was the fiddle player for the Johnson Mountain Boys before Eddie Stubbs and Ed Desmira. Super nice guy, talented. Played guitar and mandolin. Uh, he left the group. I guess the end of 1980, early 81, whatever. I think it was the end of 80. I think that, that was when the decision was made that, that, that he was leaving. And what age and, are you at this point when you, when you joined the Johnson Mountain Boys? Excuse me? What, what age are you when you joined the Johnson Mountain Boys? You were young. Uh, I think I was 18. Yeah. I, was eight, I was 18 
when we became when at the inception of of the Johnson Mountain Boys as a five piece group. And I was there at that inception. Dudley had the Johnson Mountain Boys by name before that, but it was not really a bluegrass collective. It was more like a duo or an occasionally a trio with with uh, sometimes it'd be Eddie Desmira or or sometimes it would be there was a fiddle player that played with him before I did, and then his main partner as a duo was Ron Welch. And that was when Ron Welch, Ron Welch played guitar and Dudley played banjo. And those two were kind of like the core and, and used the name the Johnson Mountain Boys. And I actually went used to go see them play, just the two of them. Or sometimes Ed Desmira would be playing mandolin or some other guy named Chip or Skip or somebody was playing fiddle. <laughs> and... Uh, but then, at the, when but Dudley and I knew each other and would, would get together and sing, and he would. There were there were times where Dudley would play banjo and I would play guitar, and uh, we got together. And I have some old kitchen tapes of the two of us singing together, like back in nineteen seventy six oh, or something. Cool. When I was like, I guess I must have been like eighteen or seventeen, maybe seventeen or sixteen. I don't remember, but. Uh, and Dudley must have been 19 or 20, I guess. Maybe, I, I guess, Dudley and I met when we were teenagers, but we got together frequently when we were in our late teens. But anyway, so uh, I was the fiddle player for the Johnson Mountain Boys when we were a five-piece group, and we were going out to open mics and coffee shops, that kind of thing, and playing like one or two songs to see how we could do. And my mother cheated what she would do was she'd call all of her friends and get them to come out to support us so we'd do an open mic and then the crowd would go nuts because half the place would be full of my mother's friends (laughs) (laughs) and uh anyway so we landed a job our first our first paid gig as a five-piece group was the silver fox and it was a 25 cent admission. And of course, my mother packed the place. And, <laughs> nice. And, and uh, 25 cent admission. And there were 44 people wow. came in and paid a cover charge. And so that we, that we as a group earned $11. Anyway, it was, it was fun. Uh, the problem was is our our beer bill was more than the eleven dollars we earned, <laughs> so we ended up a little bit in the red on that one. But we we landed our first regular gig was Wally's Crab Boat, which was a a crab like a, a, a king crab place where you like they give out the wooden hammers and you break them on this like brown paper spread out over the table. Oh, sure. So we got a job at Wally's Crab Boat, which was on 355 in Rockville. And that was a regular gig. We landed, we played there once a week and they paid us $150. And this was, of course, back in the days when I was playing fiddle with the band. So to, to move forward, I know this is a mandolin podcast, so let me move into the mandolin thing. Sure, sure. I was, I was still obsessing on fiddle and just tinkering around with the mandolin like I was with any other instrument, including, you know, whatever, horns, electric guitars, and harps, whatever, whatever I could get my hands on, sitar, I was into all that stuff, you know, anything with strings on it, I was also blowing on flutes and that kind of thing, but 
and I didn't have the lore, but I had my A2Z at the time. And, uh, well, I went off to college, and I was playing part-time on fiddle with the Johnson Mountain Boys, like on weekends. And then uh, during the weeknights when they had, like, uh, Highway Pizza, or not Highway Pizza, there was, what was the, there was another pizza place there, like Shakey's Pizza. Uh, I would go in there on weekends if they had a, a gig, but I, they had some regular, they, they, they had this, a regular gig, like on Wednesday night called The Gallery. It was some kind of a restaurant. I couldn't play there because I was in college in West Virginia at Elkins. And um, so I couldn't make it to those regular weekday jobs. And so they were getting fill-in fiddle players. And um, one of those was Eddie Stubbs. But he couldn't play regularly either because he was uh, like 16 or something. And his parents wouldn't let him go out all the time, <laughs> stay out late. Um, so... But when the mandolin player, Ed Desmira, left in 19, uh, I guess he was, I don't remember when his last show was, but I think it was at the end of 1980 or the beginning, the January of 81 or something. Uh, they had me come back on mandolin because that was the job they needed. And they said, hey, you can play some mandolin. Right? Well, sure, why not? <laughs> but I really didn't know what I was doing. I, I filled in a couple of times on mandolin when, when like, Ed Desmira couldn't make it or whatever. Uh, but I really wasn't a mandolin player. I was a fiddle player mostly at that point in my life. Mm -hmm. But I could do a few things on the mandolin. But I had a few bad habits. I was also taking some mandolin lessons, classical mandolin lessons from Herman von Bernowitz, who lived in Arlington. And he headed and, and was the founder of the Tacoma Mandoliers, which he started in 1923. Wow. And I was one of his mandolin students. And I also had joined his orchestra, finally. Um, so, at the, they, and the Johnson Mountain Boys knew that I was playing in the, in the, in the orchestra, the Tacoma Mandoliers. Um, and so they figured, okay, if you can do that stuff, you can certainly play bluegrass and, and the Johnson Mountain Boys and, and, and then and Eddie Stubbs had decided to commit full time on the fiddle so if I wanted to be a Johnson Mountain Boy it was going to have to be on the mandolin so I said sure I'll do that just let me get through uh, the end of my junior year which is coming up the end of May so I started playing on weekends on the mandolin and then uh, they would get fill-ins uh, when I on the on the on mandolin the shows I couldn't I couldn't play and then at the end of May of '81, then I was, then it was that was the end of everything else. I became a full-time mandolin player. Wow! So, what type of stuff were you working on when you were like, okay, I'm going to be the full-time mandolin player? Who were you listening to 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 sort out your oh, fiddle, your before, fiddle brain and <laughs> and all that? We, well, before that, I, you know, I, I was when I was when I was playing the mandolin, I was 
listening to Dave Apollon. I was listening to David Grisman. Of course, I was always a Monroe freak. Monroe in my head, just having grown up with it, mm-hmm. and Bill Napier, and and of course, you know, Jim and Jesse. I had all the Jim and Jesse records, and there's a place dear to me where I'm longing to be with my friends at the old country church. There with mother we went, and our Sundays were spent. With our friends at the old country church Precious, precious years of memory Oh my God And, uh, you know, Frank Wakefield spent a lot of childhood days hanging around him And uh, David Grisman, people like that, personally uh, I met David Grisman in 1966 in New York Oh, cool I was eight years old. <laughs> wow. And uh, I don't think he remembers meeting me when I was a kid. I remember meeting him when I was a kid because he handed me his mandolin. He said, you play fiddle, right? Well, here, if you can play fiddle, you can play mandolin. So he handed me his, uh, it was a lore he had at the time, a 1924 lore wow. from 66. But anyway, so uh, in 2016... He and Bill McCurry did a 50 Years Together concert, and uh, David invited me to come down to the Birchmere and sit in with that, because oh, we wow. kn- we had known each other for 50 years. So uh, I went down to the Birchmere and got up and played with Dell and David and, and myself, It was and, and then Jerry was there, and some of the other, you know, other musicians from the old days were there. It was, it was a great little uh, reunion. Oh, that's cool, man. I actually have some video footage on, on my iPhone. Oh, do you really? Of of uh, of that show. So, that yeah, someday I'll post them. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> wow, how cool. So, uh, anyway, so then after I joined, <clears throat> when I joined the Johnson Mountain Boys, I had, I had recently bought, <clears throat> oh, another thing I should point out is that I had been also playing fiddle freelance with various groups. Not just the Johnson Mountain Boys. I'd been playing fiddle with a group from uh, the Martinsburg, West Virginia area called Patton Pending. Great group. And uh, I think they still exist, but a fantastic group. Good friends. And I had a great time playing fiddle with them. And, uh, but so uh, when I switched to the mandolin and I, and Mike found out that I was going to, uh, be the full-time mandolin player for the Johnson Mountain Boys. I had recently acquired uh, an F5L, which is like a, an F5 made like in 1980 or 79 in Kalamazoo by Gibson. But it was a real piece of junk. <laughs> 
I bought it on layaway and it was like $2,000 or something crazy oh, high price for what the piece of junk it was. The Japanese made ones were better than that. And I, I, it was so bad and the finish on it was so thick. It was like one of those polymer Cypress clocks that you buy at a tourist truck stop in Florida. <laughs> you know, it's like a, a half an inch thick kind right. of epoxy resin finish on it. Uh, so I, 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 stri- I stripped all that off. And uh, refinished the mandolin with like an oil varnish or something like that. And it sounded much better. And I was playing that, but Mike said, hey, maybe now it's time for you to take that mandolin. So uh, he dropped it off at the house one day, and and it's been mine ever since. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That was was like, actually, I, I think I took delivery of it like in 1980, something like that. Wow. Has that been your number one the entire time? Did you ever, was there anything else that ever came along where you were like, ah, I can, I I think I'm loving this one right now. You know, there have been many mandolins I've loved to all the mandolins I've loved before. (laughs) Uh, But my A to Z, and I'll tell you what, my A to Z was no slouch. It was every bit as good as the best lures I've ever played. It, it sounded different, didn't have the F-sole sound, but it could chop just as loud, and the lead work up and down the neck was so beautiful. Uh, so I played that mandolin on stage, uh, took that on some tours, took that one to India and places like that, uh, only because the Lord, I didn't want to fly with the Lord. It was in a big rectangle case, and my A2Z was in a tiny little compact case it was easier to stick in the overhead without the scroll and the points and all that kind of stuff sure but anyway so uh, i owned the lore starting in 1980 so that's 40 years ago and uh i was touring with the fivl some because i just like mike i was afraid to take the lore out because it was too darn clean <laughs> sure it was so mint that i didn't want to sweat on it or wear the finish off the back of the neck. I was afraid I was going to get a mark on it. And I was afraid people would ask to look at it and I'd have to say, no, you can't touch it. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I talked to Bill Monroe and I said, yeah, I've got this lore too, and, but I'm afraid to take it out. And he said, you know, I used to be just like you. He said, I got my lore. It was in perfect condition. It have a scratch on it. And... Uh, he said he didn't. He always wiped it down after every show, and he didn't want uh, he didn't want to let anyone else touch it. The pick guard, he kept the pick guard on it because he didn't want to get a scratch on it. And then he said once uh, something happened, he got up some he got some mark on it, and then he said he and the pick guard. He took the, the the pick guard. I think I don't know what happened. He lost the screw to it, so he took the pick guard off, kept the pick guard in the case. And then somehow the pit guard got lost, and he scratched the mandolin. And once, and then once the the the, the fiasco happened with the Gibson people, he sent it back and it refinished, refinished it with their thick, heavy lacquer finish, and that made him mad. Then he said he kind of like stopped worrying about taking care of his mandolin. But he reminded me that until like until like until the end of the forties or until the early fifty one or whatever, he he used to be really careful with this mandolin and didn't want to get a scratch on it and was afraid to bump it into anything or let anyone else touch it. So he said, you just need to take your mandolin out and play it. He said, because once you do, you'll, he said, uh, it becomes a part of you. 
and it's true because uh, it's been my number one mandolin. But that's not to say that the A to Z wasn't just as loved. Uh, and, and I don't know who owns that A to Z, but whoever does, I'm telling you, whoever you are out there in podcast land, that A to Z is a, is a is a killer mandolin. And when my ship comes back in, I'd like to buy it back. Oh, nice! Yeah, man. Oh, yeah, that'll be that'll be interesting. To see if anybody who's listening turns turn as the owner. That'd be amazing. But I love all A mandolins, and I love uh, oval hole mandolins, the F twos and the F fours. And I've owned several of those. I had an F two that actually had belonged to Lloyd Lore, and uh, I ended up with that. And then I sold that about you know during also that per- same period of financial distress. Sure. And that F2 was an amazing, it was a beautifully graduated top, and it sounded fantastic. I'm not sure. I can't remember where that went or where it is now. But yeah, so I've loved uh, a lot of the oval hole mandolins. I've owned A4s. I've owned several snakeheads. I've owned a- A1s, A3s. I've owned Gibson Mando cellos and mandolas. And I've owned A50s and A50, you know, 1940s and 50s electric Gibson mandolins. And I've done all kinds of stuff. Uh, Russian mandolins. Right now I have a uh, Harmony Monterey, which I'm really digging. I love those things. And oh, some, cool. of the cheapest, some of the cheapest mandolins. Are some of the best mandolins I've ever played. <laughs> this one is actually it's not a it's not a Harmony Monterey, but it's 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 ex- identical and made the same, except it has the Gretsch New Yorker peghead. Oh wow! Plastic veneer on it, but it's actually a 1948 Monterey Harmony, but it but it was made for the Gretsch company. But it's the same mandolin, and it sounds amazing. And and this one was uh, this one they're only worth like. Two hundred to three hundred and fifty dollars, but a guy had my this one, this one that I have, and I played it, and I just had to have it. He wouldn't sell it. Oh, jeez! And he said, "Well, this thing sounds way. This, this thing's only worth three hundred dollars, and I'm, I'm not going to sell it for what it's worth because it's way better than what it, what it's worth." <laughs> and I said, "Man, I've got to have this mandolin." And uh, he, he said, "I'm not going to sell it because." You know, it's, it's not worth it's not worth what it, on the market what it is to me. This is these are only go for like three hundred dollars, and I told him I'll give you five hundred dollars for it. And he said, "No, I'm not going to sell it because it's worth it. It, it's, it sounds too good. It's not. It, I can't sell it for what it's worth. It's only worth three hundred, and I'm not going to sell it for what it's worth because it's." So I, I ended up buying it. Long story short, I ended up giving him seven hundred and fifty dollars for a mandolin that's not worth <laughs> more than three hundred and fifty or three hundred bucks. But that's how much I like those, and I've never heard a bad Harmony Monterey. You know, and it's, it's got a plywood pressed back, and the top is solid pine or spruce or something, but it's not carved. It's steam pressed into the into the arch top. Oh, really? Yeah, but they're really good mandolins, and and they're very cheap and affordable. And I, but I like a lot of these new mandolins coming out of of China and different places, like the the lore that are called the lore, mm-hmm. and all these. Real inexpensive mandolins that just happen to play and sound really good. There's really been a huge leap in 
in the construction of more inexpensive, I don't want to say cheap because they're not any longer. I mean, they're inexpensive, but there's some of those, man, there's a huge difference in the entry-level mandolin uh, now as far as quality than there was even 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. And of course, there's some, we're going through a golden era for mandolin making. We have the Collings and the Duden Bossels and the Red Diamonds and the, you know, all these different companies making amazing mandolins and, uh, you know, and then, of course, the, the the cheapies. I have several cheap Asian-made mandolins that aren't even, you know, the little A models that cost like 150 bucks at the store. Mm-hmm. I play some of those that I love. I mean, I and I and I. So when I find them for for good prices, I buy them not because I'm planning on selling them, but oh, because I play them and I go, "Wow, gotta have this." <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So I have these little, I have these crappy little cheap Asian mandolins. Like one of them, I remember is called on the peghead. It says Shenandoah. I don't know what company makes that. It's just like one of these random generic Asian made mandolins that they probably stick a different name on the peghead to whoever, depending on whoever the, the <laughs> vendor is or the, right. the the exporter is or the importer is. But uh, and I, I often play these cheap mandolins even when I go to jam sessions. And it's not because I want to protect and keep my lower locked away. I'm perfectly fine taking that out, but I take the other ones out only because I actually do love them. I'm not like a, a, a lore snob, and I, I don't say, yeah, I've got this amazing lore, uh, and, and anything else isn't good enough for me because I'm the Hall of Famer. David McLaughlin must play the lore. <laughs> no. I like to take some of my... Uh, my uh, inexpensive Asian mandolins out because they play well, they sound well, they're well-made, they sound good. And, uh, you know, a lot of people I talk to also say, I'd never buy a mandolin made in China. I read this all the time on the internet. They'll type, they'll type on their Chinese-made device, <laughs> I'd never buy a mandolin made in China because I boycott Chinese things. Oh, funny. And they, they, they're on the blogs typing that on their iPad or whatever. <laughs> right. Whatever their cell phone is made in China. You know, if you're going to say that, then, then, then don't be a hypocrite. Live like you say. Do away with everything made in China, and then I will believe you. But if you're typing on a keyboard, on a blog, or a forum, or on Facebook, I don't like Chinese. I don't like buying Chinese goods. <laughs> and, and don't say it with your Chinese made keyboard. Oh, that's a great example. That's, that's the best example I could ever think of for that. Classic stuff. Well, you, you know, you, you talk about playing like the, uh, some of the more inexpensive mandolins, but I, and, and they do sound great, but I, I would like to talk a little bit about some of your, like, um, like your practicing techniques and your teaching techniques. Cause I'm sure a lot of that also falls into how good an instrument sounds as well. And um, mm-hmm. one of the things that I found really cool when you and I were texting back and forth, setting a time to do this is um, when we first were uh, in touch via text message, you were teaching a, a um, intensive like eight hour a day mandolin course to one student and I would love to to talk about what that yes. entails. That's that sounds amazing. I do a lot of intense uh, work with driven and obsessed advanced students. That's not to say I won't do it with beginners, but generally, uh, I mean, generally anyone who's driven to the point 
of where they want to work out for six to eight hours a day. So, yeah, I do. I love to do that work. And I have some students that will come and stay at my end. And then they have basically, you can consider it like a one-on-one mandolin camp, where instead of sharing their time with other people, they are the only person we're face-to-face for as many hours as they can endure, because you cannot wear me out. <laughs> so you want to work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. with 10-minute breaks twice? I'm there. I can do it. I don't wear, I don't wear out physically or mentally. Uh, so and I can do that for three days in a row, no problem. Wow. So how does like does how does that look? Is it formatted a little bit? Do you have kind of like a guide plan when you go into like let's say just like one day of of like let's say six hours? Like how does that? I mean, I, I'm guessing it's a little bit different per player, but you know, you probably have a little bit. Oh of yeah, it's always different per player. So it, it, basically, I figure out what certain uh, weaknesses might be, and then how to f- move forward. Uh, uh, addressing certain weaknesses and how to overcome any bad habit, massive amounts of repetition. Uh. And here our phones get disconnected and he calls right back. But I do just want to remind you, if you want to support the podcast, head over to Patreon, uh, the $4 a month or the $8 a month option, or head on over to the mandolin store and buy that person you love a holiday present. I've got a revamped store now, by the way, where you um, can purchase more than one item at a time as opposed to the old WordPress. Back to the podcast. I can tell you and everybody else out there in podcast land that what I do is I teach music lessons for a dollar a minute. So like generally 45 minute lessons for $45. And then if people want uh, uh, long days, then, then, then uh, they can purchase it at the same rate, a dollar a minute. And uh, we cover everything. So like I look we, mechanics of motion, and how to think towards how to teach yourself to play music. So it's not a matter of here's the the note, here's sheet music or tab, here's the note path for this tune, because it's a lot more than just the tabbed out note path. Uh, people need to know how to play what they hear, and they know, need to know how to improvise. So... Uh, not that I'm, 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 I do, I do work with tab and I do, re- I'm, I'm a literate musician, so I read music and tab, but, uh, if you're coming to me to learn the note path of soldier's joy, it'd be a lot cheaper just to look it up on the internet. <laughs> sure. Uh, or listen to it. But if you can think it like, if you can think it, you should be able to play it. And so if you can't play it, if you can't think it and then play it, out, if you can't speak out through your instrument, that's what I teach people how to learn to do. What, what's, um, what, what's something that you see a common sort of issue in all ranges of players that, that, you, could, that you would address maybe to people out there listening for? Um, you know, just something you see in a lot of players that's pretty easy to correct in your opinion. Well, I can very quick, I don't have to think much about that. I can just very, very quickly tell you, and that is people often call me and they say, I have a problem playing in a consistent tempo and I can't have a problem playing fast. And I like, I like uh, fumble my way when I get to certain things and I can't seem to just play cohesive and solid and clean and I can't build up any speed. I usually have a theory as to what it is. And then they, when they come to me, almost always 
I go, yep, that's exactly what I thought. And what that is, is they don't have their mechanics of motion right, specifically their pick stroke direction. Mm-hmm. Like they do down, 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 up, up, down, down, up, 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 down, down, down. Instead, they need to be going down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up on every time space that would be a 16th note and so if you have an eighth note then you'd be too your next note would be another downstroke always play downstrokes on the beat this is this is if you're playing straight two four kind of material sure straight material not not necessarily waltz time but the downstrokes occur on the beats that is the front beat and the back beat and the little the little thing between them is an upstroke and it doesn't matter if you're syncopating or doing scale patterns or arpeggios or or it's just always down, up, down, up, down, up. If you keep that going, you can develop speed and uh, good timing. Oh, that's great. But I notice a whole lot of people come to me with that problem. Yeah. You know, I, um, one thing that I really found helpful too, um, when I first started taking lessons, I played for years without taking lessons. And I think a lot of people also don't realize that how slow some people start out when they're learning a song. You know what I mean? Like when somebody's learning a new tune, learning it really well, really slow is going to make a huge difference. And when you try to play it really fast with you. I believe the way you get learn to play fast is to be analytical and do it slowly and then start gradually increasing your speed. What about um some uh some left hand, maybe like a left hand tip that would help some people as well? Well, one of the things I always talk about is get it, get your hand, get your, your left hand fingers on the string as close behind the fret as you possibly can. The farther away from that fret you are, the harder you have to mash the string down. And then the more tired your left hand will get. If you put your the fingers right at the fret, then you don't have to mash the string down as hard. That's so a great tip. That's one, one, one simple little trick. Yeah, one of many. One of many. Yeah, exactly. One of the things I wanted to, I got as a note here too, um, you owned a studio for a, a while there and I yes. was wondering if you had a recommendation, did you always, did you ever have like a favorite go-to mandolin setup when you recorded? No, I don't really have a favorite. I just get a good microphone, put it in front of the mandolin or get a couple of good microphones and put it, I kind of think of like in the in the studio, I like to think of the microphones as human ears so I don't want to put a microphone like right up next to the mandolin or like by the F hole or anything. Cause just like I wouldn't want my own human ear to be right <laughs> next to the F hole. I want to be back from it a ways. Sure. So, you know, like if I were, if I wanted to sit in front of uh, any good mandolin player, if I wanted to sit in front of Chris Thiele and listen to and just really watch and just uh, get right into what he's doing, I wouldn't want to have my face like, inches or my ear inches from his mandolin i'd want to have, be like two or three feet from it mm, yeah so so put a couple of microphones and pretend they're human ears uh and then uh, that's kind of the way i like it but you know i've, I've used all that, that i've used all kinds of uh 
miking situations and owned all kinds of mics. I'm, I'm really digging the uh, the sound my my lower gets with those uh, ear trumpet microphones. I have several of those. I they're a sponsor of this podcast. I actually. love them. Me, I just got the Edwina, and I love it. I have uh, I have uh, several Edwinas. You can't have too many of those things. They're, <laughs> no, you know, they're they're great. They're, they're one of the most the greatest values in microphone history. You know, for, for five, six, seven hundred dollars, whatever they cost, uh, you're you're buying a mic that sounds as good as a three thousand dollar microphone or, or higher. They're just do amazing. Run, do you run them into preamps when you do the recording? Excuse me. Do you do you use a preamp before you go oh, into yeah. a board? Oh sure, mm-hmm. always use a good preamp. I, I I have owned many good preamps, uh, some solid state, some good tube preamps. But yeah, preamps are, are a good thing. Uh, you know, of course, these days they make all kinds of preamp modelers. You can just plug your microphone right into your computer, and then. Uh, yeah, yeah, I had I had one of those. I, I sold it pretty quickly after, but <laughs> it was like. Yeah, I like I like the good old fashioned standalone preamps. I like vintage stuff. What's one of the I, one of the things I like about. Uh, the ear trumpet is they sound so clear, but they also, there's something about them that it's like, I can get a good vintage tone if I want, mm-hmm. but they make my mandolin sound big and fat. So I know we talked a bit about gear or a bit about playing techniques and things to help people. But if you had one thing that you could tell somebody to focus on 10 minutes a day, what would you recommend? I'd recommend uh, getting familiar with the fingerboard through, um, uh, drudgery exercises like scales and arpeggios and scale patterns and going up and down the neck and getting your your right hand and left hand coordination together so that you get cleaner and uh, I'm all about clean I like to I like things to be clean I don't mind I like them to be simple and I, I don't mind a minimalist approach as long as the playing is clean I'm just I've never been I never graduate uh, I mean I've never I've never um, been a big fan of a lot of sloppy playing. What, here's a question somebody emailed me like a week and a half ago. And a person asked me, "Do you, and I guess I'll ask you, so if you're approaching playing in, um, in a key, let's say you're in A and you're on the fifth fret area on the E string, do you solo vertically or horizontally? Like would you go across the neck doing a run or would you go back down the neck and over? Well, see, I'm a big believer in being able to do either or. Nice, yeah. And what whether I what might makes me decide to do one way or the other depends on where I'm coming from and where I'm going to. You see, mm-hmm. but it's important to be proficient at going anywhere on the fingerboard. And then the final question, and although we you you were already we we talked a little bit about beer, but do you have a favorite beer? A favorite beer? No, I, 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 I love like just like I love all mandolins. I love all beer. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I'm actually a, I'm actually a charter founding member of uh, the the Ale Sampling Society of Winchester, Virginia. Oh wow! Ale Sampling Society, ASS, ASS. So uh, it's, it, the, the society is called the ASS of Winchester, and. Uh, it's a pretty it's a it's a secret club and there are quite a few members very important people in the community and what we do is we sample 
uh, very small samples of all different kinds of beer because it's all about educating ourselves about everything. So we have uh, sampled all kinds of rare beers and, of course, you know, Westy 12 and, you know, everything, Dark Lord, Imperial Stout from Munster, Indiana, and just everything you can think of, we sample it. Oh, man, that's amazing. Well, man, this has been this has been an absolute honor to to spend this amount of time with you and and talk and talk mandolins and beer with you. I really appreciate you doing this. Hey, you know what? This is my honor. This this is you know I'm I'm I know I've I've, I've seen all the mandolin people who've been on this podcast, and I was like to be included in that list of amazing people. I'm I'm just thrilled. Oh man, thanks so much. Not worthy, not worthy at all, and so. Oh, definitely, definitely worthy, for sure. I'm glad we got to make it happen. All right, another episode in the books. Want to thank you all for listening and making it possible. Want to thank my sponsors, Mandolin Cafe, Peghead Nation, Northfield Instruments, Papa Mandolins, and Ear Trumpet Labs for sponsoring us. You guys have yourselves a fantastic week. Cheers, everybody. It's a Holy Ghost building for my